Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Addiction Unscripted, brought to you by Trafalgar Addiction Treatment Center's Virtual Intensive Mental Health and Addictions Outpatient Treatment Program, Residential Treatment in the Comfort of Your Own Residence. Here at Addiction Unscripted, we're having candid conversations on all things addiction, rehab, and mental health. And I'm your host and mental health counselor, Melissa Merton. Today's podcast does come with a trigger warning for graphic content. We will be talking about trauma, violence, and suicide in our conversation, and some may find it disturbing or upsetting. So now may be the time for you to stop listening. If you're unsure you want to continue, I have put the entire transcript of today's podcast on our website. So you can scan this over by going to www.trafalgarresidence.com slash podcast and look for episode two. For a number of reasons, we rarely get an inside glimpse or details of the experiences of the people whose job it is to protect us every day. So many first responders are routinely exposed to varying degrees of trauma, and what they are seeing and feeling doesn't just go away when they take their uniforms off at the end of the day. In 2017, a study done by the Ruderman Family Foundation found that firefighters and police officers are five times higher than the general public to develop PTSD and depression and more firefighters and police officers died by suicide than in the line of duty. Many experience major depression, panic and anxiety disorders, and substance abuse and addictions, which are having devastated effects on them, as well as everyone around them, and many suffer in silence. So what does PTSD look like? How does it affect someone's thinking or mood? For someone who has been diagnosed with PTSD, how is the view of their world altered? My guest today is here to help us understand just that. Sergeant Tammy Morden has served the Niagara Regional Police Service for nearly 30 years. Her postings have included Uniform Patrol, the Traffic Unit, Fraud Investigations, the Training Unit with Use of Force, and Executive Services. In her current role, she was recently awarded the Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion Leadership Award. A part of her healing and in hopes of helping others see that they are not alone, Tammy is here sharing her no-holds-barred experiences, which led to a PTSD diagnosis and how it's affected her life. And not only is Tammy a first responder, she's a woman I personally admire and respect, and she is also one of my dearest friends. And I might add, we were able to make it through without any shenanigans. Hi. Hi. (laughs) So I am lucky to be here talking to my friend Tammy. Am I close enough to the mic? You're close enough to the mic. All right. And Tammy, what do you do? So I am a sergeant with the Niagara Regional Police. I am the sergeant in charge of policy and risk management, and I hold the diversity, equity, and inclusion portfolio for the Niagara Regional Police. That is a mouthful. It is a mouthful. And you're getting ready to retire. In a little over eight months. Wow. Yeah, it's yeah, pretty exciting. That's it's exciting. 30 years. That'll be my 30 years, and I'm going to get out of Dodge. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. So that'd be good. That'd be good. So you've seen so, a couple things in your line of work. And... Yeah. 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 So I think, uh, I think we, we kind of, we said we would talk a little bit about the, uh, the PTSD thing. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that all came about, about, I guess, two and a half years ago, three years ago. Close to three. Close to three the quote-unquote the precipitating event um all these fancy terms right the precipitating event happened almost three years ago but uh you know there was a you know 
the 29 year lead up or 28 year lead up to that and, and some of my, some of my own personal history leading up to that as well. Uh, so I have a diagnosis of moderate to severe complex PTSD, which I, my understanding means that it wasn't a, an acute uh, one-off incident. It wasn't, it wasn't some, the one thing uh, that set it off. It was an accumulation of, of things that, that caused it to happen. So any one of the things that I've seen or done or experienced in and of themselves would not have caused this, but the, the accumulation is, you know, like the, the proverbial straw on a camel's back, mm-hmm. right? So Over time. Right. So a little history. I spent most of my time in the service with in uniform. I'm not in uniform now, but most of the time um, I spent in uniform, either on the road, in traffic. I did five years in training, so I taught firearms and defensive tactics for five years. I've worked in undercover capacities in different formats and done, and done all sorts of really interesting things. I've moved around the region. So the, one of the great things about this job is you know, they, they call it the greatest show on earth because you really get to see a little bit of everything and you get to go places that most people don't get to go. You know, I, I can talk about looking for a bomb for a bomb call down at the rainbow bridge. And I got to crawl down through one of the manhole covers on the bridge and walk the catwalk underneath the bridge, checking to see if there was any unusual packages or, or anything like that. And I, I met the American contingent halfway out we said hey dude and turned around and walked back again and um and that was that was really neat and there's things like i said there's there's you know you get to go you know places and see things that most other people don't the downside is that you go places and see things things that other people don't (laughs) and there are a lot of things that nobody talks about because how can you sometimes well i think sometimes we talk about them and we talk about them and we're very yeah we're very cavalier about them Mm. You know, and it's a, it's a coping mechanism, you know, you'll, you'll hear, you know, and I've certainly been guilty of it, that morbid sense of humor and, and, and humor comes out at inappropriate times. You know, you're at a, at, at something that's a terrible, terrible scene and, you know, somebody will crack a joke about something and it's not because we are disrespectful or, or we're trying to, or we're trying to downplay or minimize the, the, the impact of, of this horrific event, but we, we have to cope somehow Mm -hmm. and I think sometimes that that inappropriate humor just takes a little bit of the edge off because uh because it hurts you know it Mm -hmm. it it hurts to see somebody especially a child or or somebody you know like hurt or or dead in a car or somebody that you know isn't going to make it you're watching their last moments um and and those are hard because you feel helpless and that really was in the in the end was uh, was I believe is what what really got to me was that helpless feeling like it, it just I just couldn't get there in time. Mm-hmm. So I guess if we go back uh, a couple of years, I'll uh, talk a little bit about the precipitating event, which was the uh, suicide of a friend of mine. So my sister in law had died uh, not long before that of uh, something else, and, and so there was some some trauma in the family. Um, and close friend of mine committed suicide. And the way that she committed suicide was that she did it in a way that almost ensured that, that we would find her. So her and her husband had separated. My boyfriend and I were, were trying to, to help both of them work through this. Her estranged husband was over for dinner and she sent him messages 
and and I looked at the messages and went, oh, that doesn't sound right. We should go check on her. Mm-hmm. And so when we got to the house, you know, the the cop kicks in, right? So so I go in and and I've been at a lot of calls where people are trying to they're they're at their their wit's end. And, you know, if they haven't been successful, then they're angry. And I didn't want anybody else to get hurt. So I went in first. And not only that, but if she was successful, then they don't need to see that either. So I went in, sort of did cleared the house. And as I'm clearing the house, we didn't think she was home. And I thought maybe she'd gone somewhere else. It turned out she was upstairs. Um, and I found her. But in the meantime, as I'm going, as I'm clearing the house to try and find her, you know, I'm thinking of all the other things I've got to do, all the checks, you know, boxes I got to check off to make sure that, that we do what we're supposed to do when we call the, the, the local policing. Cause I was outside of my jurisdiction at the time. Mm-hmm. So, so I found her, did, uh, did CPR on, on her for a little while. She was still, uh, she, we were close. We were really close. I know one of my, uh, one of my other friends got a message from her while we were en route to the house. So we, we missed her by minutes. So, did CPR on her, and when the fire department came in and the ambulance came in and they hooked her up, um, you know, they hooked her up. I, I knew I was doing the CPR right because I could see the blip of the mm-hmm. on the screen. You know, I could see the the blip. You know, with the heart where the heart blips, I could see it on the screen every time I I did a compression. But she wasn't coming back. So the next few days were a blur of trying to help with funeral arrangements and and stuff like that and. Uh, her estranged husband was just devastated and, and stayed at our house. And I can't tell you how many times I stood outside the door, the bedroom door, listening to him snore because he snores a little bit. Um, listening to him snore because if he's snoring, then he hasn't done something himself because my fear was that you he were would, afraid he was I was gonna afraid that he was going to kill himself as well. So honestly, not by far, not the worst call I've ever been to. Hmm. The difference is it's not a call. No. Right? This is a friend. But, you know, in my head, this is not the worst call I've ever been to. It's it's just another day. And, you know, it's sad and it's tragic and it's, you know, it's horrible. But, you know, you know, you carry on. And then I started having nightmares. So I've always had nightmares, but they got really bad. And I would wake up crying or screaming. At one point, I said to my boyfriend, I said, it was it's just nightmares. Hmm. And, you know, everybody has nightmares. Right. And he goes, no, not everybody has nightmares. Okay, well, lots of people have nightmares. So, uh, but these ones were like, I was, I was flailing, you know, crying and, and, you know, screaming for somebody to stop, don't do it, you know, like that kind of thing. Uh Or get out of my way, you know, stuff like that. And then, and then I stopped sleeping. I was afraid to go to sleep. Were you remembering your nightmares at that point? Some, yeah, like a lot of them were. You know, you know, you know these dreams you hear people talk about. These dreams where they're running down a hall, and as they're running down the hall, the hall gets longer. Mm-hmm. Well, it was kind of like that. Only what I was reliving was I was reliving all the calls that I'd been to where I just couldn't get there in time. I was reliving a call where a four-year-old girl had strangled on a purse cord coming out of a, coming down from a bunk bed. Because I police in a, a fairly small community, I knew her. Like I, I grew up with her parents, so I knew her, and I went to her post mortem in Hamilton uh, to make sure she was treated respectfully. And she, and they were. I mean, they're consummate professionals when they do these post mortems. But you know, like it, it was, it was hard to watch. So I relived that. 
trying to get to a call, knowing that somebody was teetering on the edge, you know, only to find them already jumped. So they're already on the ground. Car crashes where I'm trying to hold somebody together, waiting for the ambulance to get there. And they, they aren't getting there fast enough. A guy who got hit by a forklift, uh, his head got hit by a forklift. And I remember looking at him and he was talking. And when I got there, he was talking, he was lying on the ground and, and we're just trying to keep him still waiting for the ambulance to get there. And, and he's talking and as he's talking, he's starting to slur his words. And I'm like, oh, oh man, just stay with me. Just stay with me. So, uh, those were the kinds of things that I started, I started reliving. So, and funny enough, nothing to do with this friend of mine who committed suicide. Not one of them had to do with her. But it was a similar theme that triggered. It was a lot of stuff. It was a lot of, I can't get there in time. Can't get there in time. You know? So anyway, then I was sitting in the office. I went, I went to work. So I was going to work. I was maintaining ish and it was right around Christmas time. So it's lead up to Christmas, you know, we're having Christmas parties and, and whatnot, and they had a Christmas luncheon, and and this particular and incident had happened in, had happened November. in November. November, yeah. And so it's the end of November, beginning of December. I guess November, end of November, and we're having a Christmas luncheon because they they had one early that year. Everybody was supposed to bring a, an ugly Christmas sweater, and I forgot. And one of the other women in my office that I don't always get along with all that well. I usually, you know, I'm able to sort of maintain a, a semblance of some sort of control there but she came in and she was giving me grief about not not being festive not wearing a sweater and I I remember holding onto my desk because I I thought if I get up from my desk I'm I'm gonna hurt her and I I can remember Uh I had these graphic images of of knocking her to the ground and punching her teeth into the back of her throat really really graphic and so it, it most people who know me know I'm like I'm I'm fairly passive like not passive I won't say passive because I'm a cop good god um but you know <laughs> like, I mean, it, but, but, like not, no I'm not sweet and gentle but um but you know like I I do have a level of patience right and 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 self-control you know, and, and that may not have been necessarily true, you know, in the first few years of my job, uh, being on the job, but it develops fairly quickly over time. You find out that it's much easier to talk your way out of a fight. It's much easier. It's much easier on your body to, to talk your way into getting somebody to do what you want them to do. So really, like if I close my eyes, I can see it graphic. I'd also had issues with it because I stopped being able to play the radio on the way to work. Um, because I would get emotional with the music that was playing. Some stupid song would come on and I'd, I'd get all like emotional. So were and, you recognized? And it didn't matter. Like thrasher music would get me emotional, right? Like, oh, I mean, wow. I tried all sorts of things, right? And then like, you know, I was getting, Nazareth was, you know, making it, you it was making me cry, right? Like Hair of the Dog was making me, was making me cry. Right. So, so like, and, uh, and then, and then, and then somebody would do something like tailgate me because they were in a rush to get to Tim Hortons. And I would, I would have to literally pull off to the side of the road and, and, and shut it off and let it go because I could picture myself pulling them out of their car. Wow. And just pummeling them and really, really graphically. So, so those are the, the, and that's not me, right? That is just, that is just not, that's just not me. I have much more self-control than that. I won't so, say I don't imagine it from time to time, but 
but I have much more control over that. And I, w- I felt like I was losing that control. So did you, you recognize that when you started yeah, thinking so in So one of the things I did fairly early on was when this girl came into my office and would give me grief, she walked out, I'm holding onto my desk still. And one of the other women who I work with, she came in and she's our wellness person. And she looked at me and she said, are you okay? And I said, no, really, I'm not. No, no, really, I'm not. I'm not okay. And I, I really, I'm really not okay. And I think I need to do something about this because I, I, I'm, I'm scaring myself. Now that said, I mean, so I never, I won't, I won't say never had thoughts of of self harm, but I didn't have any serious self harm thoughts. But it was more, it was more, um, I was losing my temper with my children, and at one point, my son turned to me and I was, I was angry and I yelled at him and he said, "Mommy, you're scaring me." I had to take a couple of steps back. I should never scare my, the, the, I, the, I never, like would never want to scare my children. And I, and I was scaring him and I, you know, so, I mean, they're good with it. We've, we've had long discussions, me and my kids about, about what I'm going through and what it means and what it feels like and stuff. And as they get older, they, we come back and we have another discussion because they, they're, they're more capable of understanding what that means. And so anyway, so I went to see my family doctor uh, because I wanted, I needed to sleep. I, I was not sleeping. So up until that point, what were you doing to cope? Bottling it up, stomping on it. Yeah. I don't, I don't let myself drink to get rid of things. I, I'll drink to have fun and uh, occasionally drink to excess, but I, I will not, I will not allow myself to drink to get rid of something. I think that's a, that's a really slippery slope and a bad mm-hmm. way to go. I've seen too many people go that way. No drugs, no nothing, but I did go to my family doctor and, and try to get a sleep aid. So when this happened, it happened fairly quickly. Like we're talking within a two or three week period. Okay. I slid really hard, really fast. The other part was that I had, I had just gotten into the job I'm currently in, which is an office job. So I was off the road. I was in an office job. I knew at that point that I had three years to go to retire. I've always said that I'll put my 30 years in and then I'm, I'm done. Love my job. Love what we do. It's been really great for me, but I'm going to retire when I'm, I'm young and able to, to do all sorts of things with it. So I've always known what my, what my retirement date was. So I, I went to see my family doctor. She said, I'll give you a referral right, to the local health system. And I said, okay. And then she gave me a prescription for a really mild anti-anxiety because at this point I had had my first uh, panic attack. And and so I was talking about panic attacks and not sleeping and, and stuff. So she gave me a very mild uh, anti-anxiety medication. And then I, I went ahead with that. So uh, I really don't like taking, like the same thing, I don't like taking medication. I don't like the idea of being dependent on something like that. So luckily at work, we have a group that we can go speak to. So I got in to see a therapist within, once I said I was having issues, I think I was in within a week, week and a half. Do they supply someone through like in office or is that through employee assistance? Uh, We have employee assistance, but because it was, I think we were already looking at, like when I went to see the therapist for the first time, she asked me why I was there. And I said, because I I think I have PTSD. 
And she said, well, why would you say that? And I said, well, because I was in the training unit and I taught this stuff. Like I, I taught this crap and they're all the classic signs of this. So I just need to deal with it so I can get back to work. So can we move this along? Right. Interesting. And, uh, and she went, Oh, okay. And they did, they did some testing and, and came back with, um, with this diagnosis. And then it was funny because we went to sit down and, and, you know, I, I kind of really mechanically went through what had happened and, and, and stuff. But I think I was three or four months into therapy before I actually like got weepy in her office. I never actually cried, but I got weepy. And when I got weepy, she says, now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> so, but you know, I could cry on my own and, and my poor boyfriend, I mean, my goodness, I think he was, his poor shoulder was, was soaking wet from time to time. But, you know, I was really fortunate. I got into to have some therapy. So I did a lot of talk therapy. And then more recently, we've been talking about EMDR, mm-hmm. uh, eye movement, desensitization, EMDR. Uh, haven't got to that yet. Um, you have to, I think for EMDR, you have to, there has to be something that you're focused on overcoming. And I, I have a hard time figuring out what that thing is. I know I, like I get anxious and I get, you know, and there's, especially if I'm trying to multitask, if I'm trying to do too many things, too many complex things at once, I get really easily overwhelmed. That was one of the most frustrating parts of this whole process was the cognitive impact. It took, I started reading again about three weeks ago, but I would read a book a night, like from the time that I could start reading when I was a kid, I read voraciously. I have about 400 first edition hardcovers. There's a floor to to ceiling almost bookcase filled with books. I, I, I love books and I stopped reading. I couldn't focus. Like I'd get through a paragraph and not be able to remember the beginning of the paragraph. And I stopped reading. So, and, and, and it's that kind of, and not being able to hold two tasks together at the same time. So I could do one thing as long as I could focus on it. And I still have issues with that sometimes. You know, I find it here at home when you were coming over today, uh, we were prepping some stuff and my boyfriend's like, okay, so we gotta, we gotta do this. Oh, and we gotta do that. And so I would start on, on the this and then he'd say, oh, we gotta do that. And then I would turn to start that but this wasn't done. And then he say, Oh, and don't forget we got it. And then all of a sudden I'm losing my mind because that's too many things. So you I, get I overwhelmed very really easily. easily. And I used to be able to juggle. I used to be able to juggle like crazy. So that, that was, that was very frustrating when I come back to like, I come back to the, the getting into a therapist that was, I was very, very fortunate with that. I haven't had the same luck getting into a psychiatrist. So I finally, after about six months of therapy, have said, you know, okay, so maybe I need to find some medication that actually works for me because the medication that I got from my my doctor really didn't do what it was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. But I'm scared of it and I don't I don't want to turn into a zombie. I don't want to turn into a mumbly and I don't want to I don't want to be staring off into a corner, you know, drooling somewhere. And I respond really strongly to medication at the best of times. Mm-hmm. So if it's not Tylenol or Advil, I, like it, it just it just knocks me for a loop. And in all fairness, when you get prescriptions and you take medication, right. it gets monitored. So you you know you don't see a lot of people walking around drooling. No, this is true. <laughs> this is true. But I, I'm just like I mean, I'm, and I'm not saying that my thought process is logical. <laughs> 
right? No. It's it's an emotional response, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't want to I don't want to find out two months down the road that everybody at work was like, oh, Tammy's on a new medication. <laughs> Tammy's got some new meds and she's not all together there. But at the same time, oh no, Tammy. I, and I and, I, and, and it, like I said, it's not. But but I'm just I'm telling you what the like. No, but what isn't I'm sharing is is not is not the reality. It's my perception uh-huh. of what I do or don't want to experience. And what is it, it's? But it's a really good example of taking what you're experiencing and not to take away from your experiences mm-hmm. and magnify it because, like, oh. especially in the last year, I think all of the first responders and suicides and PTSD yeah. and trauma. Like, right. Do you find that there's there's a disconnect? Because you're, you're talking about just the couple things that you told me, and that's probably just a, a small handful of what you've seen. You've been exposed to trauma over and over again yeah. on several different levels. Right. Where does that go? Because that, that's burnt into your brain. So, so what do you do with that? So I, I always say that that you know my my um, all that all that crap, all that emotional psychological crap, my brain, my head is kind of like a storage room, yeah. and there's stuff that you keep on you, you you know it's a storage room full of shelves, right? And there's stuff that you keep down in some corner somewhere because it's it's old and dusty, and and you know every once in a while you pull it out, you look at it, and it's you know it's kind of cool. Hey, that's my third grade teacher, or hey, that was my first prom, you know, date, you know, like that kind of thing. Yeah. They're not unpleasant memories, but they're old and you don't look at them all the time. Yeah. There's the stuff that's on the the, 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 the shelves at, at eye level. And those are things that you put on display. And probably those boxes are clear because you want to see them. You see them, you refer to them all the time and stuff. And then there's the stuff that's up on the top shelf. And that's the stuff where that's the icky stuff. And you've put it in a box and sometimes the box is a little bit leaky and gross looking and smells funny and you put the lid on it and every once in a while you take it down, you open it up and you go, Ugh. Ugh. and then, and then you, you quickly put the lid back on it and you, and you, you stuff it up mm-hmm. on the shelf again. Um, and I think, you know, when, when I had this issue, when it, when it sort of came to the forefront what it felt like was that um, that room went through an earthquake and everything just got tossed everywhere. And now I'm having to put things back where they belong. Right. And some things will never go back where they belong. All that icky stuff has been spread all over the freaking room. That's probably about as good as I can. That's an amazing analogy. That's that's the image I have in my head. So, which makes my head sound like a really weird, dusty, but I was able to get into therapy about so this happened in November. I was in therapy by the beginning of December. In February, I got a phone call from the local health system saying, "Hey, we got your referral. We'd like you to come in." In February, and I went, "Are you kidding me?" So, you know, when you talk about about first responders and and stuff, so my PTSD is a WSIB. Now WSIB has because uh, I'm back to work, and they, I think they figure if you go back to work, you're done. You're good. Yeah, it's all better now. And that's not really the way it works. But because I was a first responder, I was able to get in to see help right away. If I hadn't gotten in to see help, if I'd had to wait until February, I can't imagine how far down that road I would have gotten, how bad it would have gotten 
and how much my family would have suffered as a result. My work, if I'd lost my temper, would mm. I be up on charges? Would I get suspended? Would I be spending my last couple of years having legal issues? All because because the health system is so overwhelmed. You know, it's, it's certainly come out lately with, you know, with the with, with all this stuff with, with George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. One of the other things that's come up is, is this defund the police. And, and the concept in it is really, really wildly unpopular. That, that hashtag is wildly unpopular in my workplace, as you can well imagine. I can. Um, but, you know, the reality is it's because we are trying, we are going to stuff that, that the, the, the system is failing people. The system that we have, the, the, the psych system that we have right now is failing people. Mm-hmm. The people are not getting in to see somebody when they need it. They're getting in. And that, I got, that's when I got the phone call. They were offering me a spot in March. They had an opening in March. Four months. Four of months it. So if I was in crisis for four months and they said, you know, like, well, if it gets really bad, go to the hospital. I, I, I can tell you as a first responder, I, I'm unlikely to go to the hospital. You know, like we have sort of a system worked out so that, you know, we aren't doing things the same. But like if I went into crisis, it's unlikely that I would have gone to the hospital and I should. Um, and, and, and I shouldn't say I, I wouldn't, but I would really, really, really think hard about whether I wanted to go to the hospital or not. Because normally I'm the person bringing people there and I'm going to have to go back there with people on the job to deal with those, the, the medical staff, the, and the, and the patients. Um, so for one of the patients to see me in there and then for me to turn around and try and bring them there again next, you know, in, in two, in two months, it's not going to happen. Right. Yeah. So, so it's, it's difficult. So anyway, I, I like, I just want like, that was one of the things I wanted to make sure I brought up was that, was that, you know, it would have been four months before I even saw anybody before I even saw anybody. Do you feel that's um, changed at all since? Not really. You know, if we're looking at a system that that's going to work, you know, it's great for people who have coverage. It's actually pretty decent for people who have coverage, but for people who don't have coverage, the system sucks. Mm. The current system sucks. You know, so you're, ta- you're, you're disadvantaging people who are already, already disadvantaged. So I took six months off of work and at the six month mark, I went to my therapist and I said, I think I need to go back. And she says, I don't think you're ready. And I said, oh, I think I'm ready. Well, I may not be ready, but I need to go back. And she didn't, she says, why do you need to go back? I said, I need to go back because I'm getting to the point where I don't really want to. Hmm. So when I first went off, I was like, okay, I'll take a week. You know, maybe I'll take a week, maybe two weeks, you know. And it took a while for me to, to settle into the idea that I needed to stay off until I got better. So they never officially, they never had to officially take my gun away. It's always one of the things that they, that that is such a fear, fear, isn't it? It's a huge fear. You know, when I retire, one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to hand my gun in. Now I don't keep it at home for the most part. It's locked in my locker. It's, you know, I don't, I don't wear it when I'm off duty, but it is part of that professional identity for whatever reason. It's, it's a, it's a thing. Um, and so when they take that, when that gets taken away, it's like they're taking part of your professional identity away. Now I have heard, I've heard stories 
And maybe I think I don't know if this is a conversation we had before, if this was something at Trafalgar, um, because we do a lot of work with first responders and, and PTSD. When someone goes on antidepressants, that is one of the boxes that gets checked for taking your gun away. Is that is that true? Is that always the case? I would suggest that work would have to find out about that. Hmm. But no, not necessarily. Okay. So not necessarily. Because um, I had a problem with that, right? Yeah, because no, we're I, saying I, I, go I, get no, help no, for we, mental health. Yeah, absolutely. And we do say go ahead and get help. I think if you have suicidal ideations, right? If you have suicidal thoughts, mm-hmm. if you are expressing a level of, of depression that has gone into that, that suicidal piece, the self-harm piece or harming somebody else, right? then it would be in everybody's best interest for me not to have my gun. Absolutely. Right? But I wasn't having self-harm thoughts. So you can't make that a blanket decision if somebody is being treated for mental health, whether it's medication or not, Correct. that they should have their gun taken away. Right, right. And we have a number of officers. We have a number of officers who have gone through it come through it, they're on antidepressants or whatever, and, and, and they're back at work. So my service is really great. I got to tell you that, that my service, hands down, there was no questions about when I indicated that I needed help. Um, I got the help. When I said I needed time off, I got the time off. And when it turned into be six months, I wasn't getting hounded to come back. WSIB pushes a little bit. Once you start to come back, they want you back full time fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want a return to work plan and they want it to have a finite schedule. My work itself, they were they were incredibly supportive. Like I said, nobody was hounding me, bothering me, you know, that kind of thing. I got I got calls from time to time from the woman from wellness and um, and stuff and from my boss just checking in. Hey, how's it going? you need anything, you know, that kind of thing. So they, they, they've been great, like yeah. absolutely fantastic. No complaints there at all. You know, others, you know, there, I've heard, I've heard other people say that they've had, you know, they've been, you know, given the gears or, or whatever, but my service seems to have sort of embraced the idea that they, they need to step up to the plate on this one. It doesn't help that we've had a number of suicides in our service. Um, in your division. Uh, was in the, in the service. So in Niagara and both with their own service pistols, a friend of mine years ago, and now we're talking almost 20 years ago, he swallowed his gun about 20 years ago. And then a guy that worked for me, he, he Sandy killed himself two years ago. So not long, I guess about a, I'm not sure how long after I went off. Um, and I felt really bad because I, I just couldn't bring myself to go to his funeral. I just couldn't do it. I got dressed. I got ready. And I just couldn't do it. That's hard to accept because he deserved better than that from me. But yeah, like it's, it's all, it gets better. I look at it like, uh, like I blew my knee out. So if I, and I talk to people about it, I talk to people about my experience with PTSD and, and stuff. It's not an acute thing. So we had, we've had a a few people that have been involved involved in shootings where people have been shooting at them or they've been shot. Or uh, we had a couple of officers that tried to get into a house to rescue a lady who was with her son. He, uh, he lit the house on fire, had it covered in gas and the house just went poof up and, um, basically exploded in fire and they got caught in it and got burned really badly. And, and they both ended up with, with some significant PTSD. And that would be, I guess, acute 
like acute onset. Like it's a, it's a, it's a, it's one horribly horrific traumatic incident that, that sets it off. Mine was not like that. Yours were repeated over and over. Yeah. And, and, and not necessarily aimed at me, right? Like I wasn't the injured party. I try to explain to people that there's two different, very distinct things, but I look at it like, like if I had blown my knee out. So if I physically hurt, like I blew my knee out and I did rehab and I come back and I could probably go back to work, you know, depending on the severity of the injury, I may or may not be able to come back to work. But if I come back to work, I can probably do all right. But I may not strap on a a 50 pound rucksack and run up the stairs. Right. That may not be, that may be more than my knee can handle. And yet I could have done that before I blew my knee out. So it doesn't make me any less. It just means that I have to work within what what I'm capable of doing. And so I look at this the same way. It's, it's, a, it's a psychological in- injury. And I just have to recognize that initially they said, oh, you know, you'll get some help and you'll be back to normal. Everything will be fine. I'm like, that injury isn't always going to be there. But I will develop coping mechanisms and, and so on to be able to help deal with that. And then, you know, every once in a while, things will start to go sideways for me. And, you know, we talked earlier, I, I've been having nightmares again recently, this past week or so. And I, I think it's because I'm on vacation. So when I, uh, when I first uh, when it first happened, I said, you know, I said to my, my, my shrink, why now? This whole thing with my, my friend that killed herself, like not the most graphic, horrible thing I've ever seen. I'm not, you know, seeing people decapitated and like eviscerated and all sorts of crazy kids and why now and she said you know you're getting close to retirement uh you've just gotten into an office job so you're not on the road anymore she says you took a breath you stopped to breathe and i think that's some of it is that you you hold your breath so at this point i know my retirement date is only eight months away and at this point, I, I want to, I, like, I, I'm, I'm impatient. I want to get there. Um, and so you're kind of holding your breath. And, and so I go on vacation and it's like I breathe. And all of a sudden everything piles in again uh, because, because I let my guard down. Cause I, because I, I stopped holding my breath. So I have, to, I have to be conscious of that. I have to be aware of that on an ongoing basis. And, you know, I have to, I have to sort of make sure that I, I engage those coping mechanisms. So, I mean, I've been meditating every day this week. I meditated before you got here. My kids, you know, they say meditation, AKA nap, mom. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. AKA whatever you want to call it. it But I mean, there's a, there's a series of guided meditations that I, that I've hooked into and, and really enjoy. So they take me through, you know, breathing exercises and, and stuff like that. And yeah, at the end, sometimes I do fall asleep, Yeah, you know, and get it. It's just an added bonus. It's just a meditation. Bonus, right? It's nice. That's like, true relaxation. I am, I am totally sold on this whole siesta thing. I think, I think we, we, there are things that we can take from all sorts of different cultures and the siesta is siesta definitely is one, one of them. them. So if somebody, whether a first responder or somebody else is going through what you went through and feeling some of the things that you went through and what you were talking about, what would you tell them? Biggest takeaway advice you could give to somebody? Just admit that it's happening. Really admit that it's happening and that you may need help to find the way to deal with that, to give you the coping mechanisms, to talk it out. An independent third party that can listen to you talk it out 
Talking to yourself in the mirror is not the same. Talking it out inside your head is not the same. When you actually have to say the words to another person and, and saying it to your spouse or saying it to your parents or your children or a close friend, because you aren't honest with those people. No. And the other thing you too, can't you can't be. And with talking to a counselor or, or a therapist is when we disclose and talk about what's inside of our head, right. some of it isn't true. We're telling ourselves things that and have a belief system sometimes that isn't true. Right. And then we tell ourselves that over it's and over exaggerated. again. It's exaggerated and a counselor. Yeah. yeah. will help you pull that apart. Yeah. And help you look at, at what that really is. You know, there's, and there are things that, you know, there are things that are entirely true and entirely, but I mean, you know, there are things that, you know, I, I, as much as my boyfriend is fantastic, right? Like he's, he's a fantastic support. But I don't want him with those things inside his head. He's heard some of them. He was there the night friend took her life. He's got some of it. I can't unload on him. I shouldn't unload on him and expect him to take it away from me because that's not right either. Then we're both just damaged and that's not good. So that independent third party who you can share everything and anything honestly with because you're right, we have we have our own internal monologue that we turn around and say, this is the way it happened. And I can turn around to my counselor. I might say to somebody, to a friend, like if I was talking to you as a friend, makes it bigger than it is, right? Mm. It makes it more exaggerated. Or I might minimize something. I might be very cavalier about something. Oh, you know, it was no big deal. When in fact, it really was a yeah. big deal for me. Um and that's because we have a relationship that I want to keep after, mm. you know, with my therapist, I'm not saying that I, I'm not saying that I won't keep my therapist, but I can walk away from my therapist. And know? there's no bad feelings. Right. Right. Totally there's impartial. No, it, it's not. And I'm not going to have, you know, Christmas dinner with that person. I'm not going to go shopping with that person. I'm not going to go drinking with that person. There's no risk with that independent third party. And that, I guess, admitting that it's an issue and talking to somebody that's independent is huge. And if you don't find that person the first time, keep looking. I had a therapist to start with and she was fantastic. Got me back to work, got me through the first six months, got me back to work, everything, you know, and, and so on. But everything leveled. Right now, I'm giving some thought to moving to a, a new therapist just for that different perspective and I guess I I would uh, you know liken that to you know I had a surgeon for my surgery for my knee but then I go see a physiotherapist afterwards I don't go see the surgeon for the physiotherapy you know those are different mm -hmm. two different things Fair. and so you know and I'm not saying the doctor can't it's just saying that you know I might decide to go to somebody different and right. every counselor or therapist has a different approach and brings a different perspective. Yeah. They bring the same professionalism, but a, a yeah. new perspective and a new way to look at the same thing. Right. Right. And and there's also chemistry, right? There has to be a, a sense that, that you can work together because it is a partnership. So, and you can't, you can't just be partners with anybody. So sometimes you have to find the right partner to work through all that stuff with. So that's, uh, that's about it. That's where, that's where my, where my PTSD journey sort of evolved. and Thank you for sharing. And we've been friends for how long? And I still can't say what you do. <laughs> what, what is your job title again? <laughs> so I am the, uh, I'm the sergeant in charge of policy and risk management 
and I hold the diversity, equity, and inclusion portfolio for the Niagara Regional Police. So where policy and risk management means that I deal with all the uh, policies, all the, the written stuff on what we're supposed to do. And risk management means I deal with all the civil lawsuits. My unit does. Okay. And then I personally hold the, uh, the diversity, equity, and inclusion portfolio, which means a little bit of everything to everybody. So we're hoping to make it more. We'll see what happens in the future. But, uh, yeah. um, but it's, it's good. It's community outreach, creating partnerships. And, and that's, community, that's uh, community partnerships both internally and externally so that either members of the public or members of the service who bring uh, unique different perspectives and different different cultures, different backgrounds, different, you know, all sorts of different things can feel like, can know that they belong at the table. Very nice. And most importantly, I consider you one of my dearest friends. Yeah. <laughs> and I get to hug you. you <laughs> Thank you. You're very welcome. Tammy will be retiring April 30th of this year, 2021, and we wish her so much happiness, love, and all the fun times life has in store for her. You definitely deserve it, Tammy. If you or someone you know needs help, please know you're not alone, and there are some amazing people and organizations available to help. For lists of local and national resources, please visit our website at www.trafalgarresidence.com slash first responders. Until next time, this is Melissa Martin, and you've been listening to Addiction Unscripted. For more information on the amazing programs Trafalgar Addiction Treatment Centers has to offer, please call 1-855-976-9760 or visit www.trafalgarresidence.com.